You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 79. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. I've got a big show for you today, so let's get started. I'm going to mix up the order of things today because this is the last episode of Things Unseen. Before we get to the story, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,253 words this week, over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 651 words per hour. I wrote on five out of seven days this week. I did a little better this week on writing The Lost and the Least. I started taking my laptop to work with me so I can do some writing during my lunch. I don't actually get that many words written during that time, but it does a great job of front-loading the story into my head so I can be more productive in the evening when I get home. This week I finished chapter 36, and the manuscript is up to nearly 122,000 words. This week we picked up a new patron on the Patreon campaign. Please welcome Stephen. In addition, Guardian Lion and MG Barber both increased their pledge amounts. Remember, I'm doing a promotional giveaway for the new paperback version of Divine Intervention. If you make a new pledge before December 1st, you'll be entered in a random drawing to receive a signed copy of the book. And if you're already a patron, and you've made at least $150 in total donations by the end of this year, then you'll automatically receive a copy of Divine Intervention as my thank you for your support. Details can be found at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Spread the word, and let's keep those pledges coming in. Today I'm bringing you the final chapter of my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, this story began running in episode 24 of this podcast, so you should go back there to hear the story from the beginning. I'm not going to do a recap this week, folks. You all know what's going on by now, and if you don't, you should get caught up. You can find past episodes at chrislester.org, metamorecity.com, or in the podcast stores on iTunes or Google Play. After the story, we're going to go straight into the credits, so I'm going to sign out here. For all my American listeners, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And for everyone else, I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll be back next week with feedback and my interview with A.F. Grappen. Until then, keep it on the bright side. Now, here it is. The Conclusion of Things Unseen. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Laster Chapter 24 With Majestrix Kaya's help, the return to the surface was much easier than the descent. Two lift tubes descended into the catacombs near the staircase where they had fought the last battle. One for Kate, David, and Kelsey, 
the other for the four noble scions. The Citadel police had already detained the surviving members of the syndicate strike team. According to Kaya, the man Kate had shot in the chest was at the hospital, under guard and in serious but stable condition. Apparently, he'd been charged up on vampire blood, and she had missed his heart, so he had regenerated enough on his own to avoid bleeding out. Kate was glad. After her conversation with Kaya, she felt nothing but pity for the thralls. Her quarrel was with Malcolm and Fisher, not with their minions. Kate and David went up to the Lothanasi field office with Kelsey. They were technically in Lightbringer custody, being held for questioning in connection to the shooting, but nobody asked them to surrender their badges, weapons, or spellcasting equipment. Someone brought them breakfast sandwiches from a nearby deli, so they sat in the break room, ate, drank coffee, and watched the news while they waited for Janus to be released from the hospital. The news made for interesting television. Zeke, Julia, Misty, and Sefi had been paraded through the Citadel under heavy escort and taken up to the Central Police Station for questioning. The reporters had identified Misty Halloway immediately and had predictably gone nuts with speculation about what she was doing there and what exactly had happened. Count Halloway didn't answer any of the many requests for comment, but soon after that, the police station was surrounded by humorless men in black suits, who kept the reporters at a more discreet distance. Sefi had been right. It was a good diversion. On another day, the reporters might have had questions if the Lightbringers took two mid-ranking police detectives into custody, but this time they had missed it completely. Certain other people, however, did not. Kate's phone rang about halfway through her third cup of coffee. She looked at the caller ID and her stomach flip-flopped, even though she'd been expecting the call. She pushed back her unease and answered anyway. Hi, Cap. Lieutenant Katane, Captain Montgomery growled. I just got a call from the chief of Citadel Police. She tells me you slabbed a perp in their jurisdiction early this morning. That's correct, sir. Then I find out that you're in Lightbringer custody and they won't let me see you. Yes, sir. You want to tell me why? Want to, sir. Can't. Matter of Imperial security. I also got a call from Count Halloway. Apparently he couldn't get in to see you either. Gulp. Thank heavens for that thousand-year-old charter the Lightbringers were always going on about. It's a really big matter of Imperial security, sir. Like... Talk to the Majestrix for two hours, Big. The captain sighed. All right. Let Marcy know when you're going to be released from Lightbringer custody. She'll send someone to bring you down to the precinct house. Okay. You realize I have to place you on leave until you're cleared. You've never had to do this before, so I want to warn you. It's going to take some time. It'll be at least a month before you're back on active duty. Maybe two or three. Kate had known that but it still hurt a little to hear it. I understand, sir. I know it's the last thing you want to hear, but try to relax. Internal affairs is going to be all over your ass, and you're going to hate it. But if you trust the system and let it work, everything's going to be fine. She clenched the fist of her free hand, then deliberately flattened it out on the table. I'll try, Cap. Good. Hang in there, Lieutenant. Montgomery out. He rang off. Kate put down the phone and stared at it. 
David eyed her with concern from across the table, but said nothing. The voices in her head offered reassurance. It'll be okay, detective, Hal said. You saved Seffi and that Lightbringer woman. The boy's right, Mr. Travers put in. I had a buddy who was a cop once. Shot a guy in pretty similar circumstances. Took a while, but they sorted it out. You stopped the bad woman from hurting us, Amani said. Kate put her head down on the table. Guys, I know you mean well, but if you don't keep it down, I'm going to go crazy. Er. A flutter of apologies followed, and then the voices settled down once more into the usual constant background murmur. I don't know how Seffi dealt with this, Kate said. Thank Eli, I can't see the future, too. Or futures. Gods, how horrible would that be? seeing all the ways your life could go wrong and not knowing which one was going to actually happen? She took a sip of her coffee, set it down again. Of course, if I'd been able to see what would happen, maybe I could have done things differently. David's ears pricked forward. How so? Kate shrugged. I don't know. There's a lot of things I could have done. Kneecapped her. Knocked her out. Disarmed her. There were options. David frowned. You were facing an armored hostel in a life-or-death situation. If you'd done any of those things, there's a good chance you would have gotten killed. You did exactly what you were trained to do. I know. I know. Kate held up her hand and tried to find the words. It's just... She sighed, letting her hand fall to the table in a frustrated slap. It shouldn't have to be this way. That woman was somebody's little girl until the vamps turned her into a blood puppet. She blinked back tears, and I just blew her brains out. You defended innocent lives, David said. That's not murder, Catherine. She looked up at him bleakly. Yeah, but it feels that way. The door to the break room opened. Kelsey walked in, followed by Janus. The commander was dressed in a clean white shirt, no tie, and khakis, which was the most informal Kate had ever seen him. He held himself stiff as he walked, but he was walking. Lieutenants, he said, by way of greeting. I trust that our people here are making you comfortable. David held up the remains of his breakfast. We are amply supplied with caffeine and cholesterol. He nodded toward the television. Perhaps the choice of entertainment is less than soothing. Janus grunted in grim amusement. The doctors cleared me to return to duty, and the shuttle's refueled and ready for takeoff. We can leave whenever you're ready. Kate stood, drained her coffee in one long draft, and tossed it in the green bin for composting. Let's go, she said. I've got seven friends who've been waiting a long time for this. The Lightbringer shuttle took them out of the city and about 400 kilometers southwest over the Sea of Stars. There, at a dizzying altitude of 50,000 meters, they rendezvoused with a much larger aircraft, which came down from the skies above like a bird preparing to swallow a bug. The vessel was a hundred meters long, matte black, and had a sleek, triangular lifting body, narrow at the nose and wide at the delta-shaped tail. Two pairs of enormous mana engines ran almost the length of the aircraft, 
one pair protruding from each wing about a third of the way out along its length. The twin cross of the Lothanasi was painted in white on the V-shaped tail fins and the underside of each wing. That looks very fast, Kate said, staring at the aircraft as it approached. The Elbereth can go from one side of the globe to the other in less than three hours, Kelsey said proudly. David's face lit up in delight. Ah, Elbereth, Star Queen, a fitting name for a space plane. So it just hangs out in orbit until you need it, Kate asked. It lands, periodically, Janus said, in very secure and remote locations. Once the shuttle was secured in the cargo bay, Janus escorted them up to a sparsely furnished passenger cabin, which looked like it could hold about a hundred people. They strapped themselves in. Every seat had four-point harnesses and a permanently reclined seat back, and then Janus gave the signal for hard burn. A roar filled the cabin, and Kate was pushed back into her seat with a force that put roller coasters to shame. So great was the acceleration that Kate almost blacked out, even with the specially designed chair. The Elbereth rose to the edge of space and screamed south and west, across the Great Western Ocean to distant Arambi. After a while, the engines fell silent, and for the next two hours they coasted, riding their suborbital trajectory like a giant ballistic missile. The flight was weirdly quiet and unexpectedly peaceful, and without meaning to, Kate slept through almost all of it. She couldn't really blame herself— She'd been awake since 5 a.m. the previous morning, but she was still a little disappointed. She doubted she'd get too many chances to ride a top-secret hypersonic space plane. The captain notified them when they neared Telvar, and they all returned to the shuttle and strapped in for the drop. Drop turned out to be a literal term. The Elbereth opened its two massive bay doors along its belly and released the shuttle from a height of 100 kilometers, the air was so thin and they were going so fast that the shuttle acted more like a flying brick than an aerocraft. They fell out of the sky with their nose canted upward, riding a wave of compressed air that glowed like a shooting star. Once they'd bled off enough speed, Janus leveled off and turned the engines on. They flew the rest of the way into the rift zone on their own power. Apparently, Lightbringer Authority extended even to unscheduled trips to dangerous high-mana zones, because the officials handling air traffic control barely batted an eye at their coming. Rift activity seems to be at a low point in the cycle, Kelsey said, examining the telemetry data coming in from the ground stations. Readings at the edge are holding steady at 2,400 kilochannings. Janus nodded once. Should be safe enough with the mirror suits. Brace for descent. They sat down on the bare rock cliffs, only a hundred meters or so from the rift's edge. There was a small risk of malfunction from the shuttle when the mana fields were this strong, but Janus had judged that it was best for them to get in and out quickly to minimize their exposure time. Four mirror suits had been loaded into the back of the shuttle for them, and they quickly suited up and began the hike to the rift. The tropical sun was sinking in the west and in the twilight Kate could see the glow coming up from the canyon's edge. A few minutes later, Kate was looking down at the vast, ugly scar on the world, a wound inflicted in the name of justice and military expediency. 
A bright light glowed in the depths far below, but it looks so desolate, she said morosely. I don't know how you can stand it out here. You're only seeing it in the physical world, Cynthia said. Our home is more than that. Here, let us show you. A metaphor you can understand. And then images began to appear before Kate's eyes. Thin, glowing lines of light, tracing out forms in the empty air of the rift. A few of them at first. A staircase, a doorway, a sloping roof. And then more and more, making houses, towers, terraces, parks, temples. They filled the rift from top to bottom, front to back, and horizon to horizon. A vast city, as majestic as Metamore, and even more glorious. A city of light. This is home, one of the native Telvari spirits said. This is the world we have built. Once we dealt in death and were paid in death. Now we build a world of life beyond life. It's beautiful, Kate whispered. Tears were running down her face, and she didn't know when she'd started crying. Thank you for showing me. Other spirits appeared in the rift now, beings of light that flew and walked and floated through the levels of their radiant city. They got closer, surrounded Kate, and then she could see their facial features. Most of them looked Arambian, the native Telvari, but Kate saw a few Kitchlanders and Songafilders and Shori among them as well. There was even an elf spirit among them, though he seemed more interested in David than in Kate. And one of them was a burly, bearded man, with straight white teeth and eyes that sparkled with mirth. Well, detective, it looks like you kept your promise, Gordon Levinson said. Artax told me we could count on you. Kate bowed to him in greeting. Well, sir, I swore to serve and protect. Nobody ever said it was just for mortals. Kelsey looked at Kate, puzzled, then at Janus. Can you see who she's talking to? Janus's lip twitched in amusement. No, but I have a pretty good idea. Hello, Commander Levinson. Kate listened to Levinson for a moment, then translated. He says hello, and thanks for the help. The locals want to talk about a treaty when you've got the time. Thankfully, treaties are not my department, Janus said, smiling, but I'll be happy to bring back a representative from high command once I tell them what's happened here. If they have any special requests for a negotiator, tell them to contact me and I'll make the arrangements. Kate turned back to Levinson. Sorry, he's awfully fussy about protocol sometimes. He's a soldier, Levinson said, simply. He paused and tilted his head, as if listening to something. Manafield's about as low as it's going to get. Why don't you crack open that suit and let our people out of there? Kate still felt nervous at the idea of opening the mirror suit, but she could feel the excitement from her seven passengers, the anticipation at finally coming home. So she unfastened the clamps on her helmet, twisted it to open the seals, and lifted it free. The jungle air was hot, thick, and muggy, but Kate immediately felt the same vital energy that she had felt inside the Nexus. Life mana flowed into her, replenishing what the rift spirits had consumed over the last several hours, and giving her a good deal more besides. The capacity of her mystic center seemed almost limitless. 
She wondered how much life mana she would have to absorb before the rift started changing her, the way it had changed Zeke and the others. She decided she didn't want to find out. Okay, people, end of the line, she said. She felt a flush of warmth below her navel, and then a glowing form rushed up her spine and out of her mouth. It quickly formed into the image of a little Larambian girl, maybe seven years old or the equivalent. Imani waved goodbye to Kate, and then ran forward to a pair of spirits in the crowd, who caught her and hugged her close. Another rush of light followed, and then Cynthia stood before her, her spiritual body glowing and her face alight with joy. She threw her arms around Levinson and kissed him. After a long moment, they broke the kiss and pressed their foreheads against each other. I told you I'd get you home, love, Levinson said. You did, you did, Cynthia said, laughing and crying all at once. Others followed. Old Bernie Travers, putting his hands on his hips and gazing out speculatively at the City of Light, and three more Talvari natives, a man and two women. They, too, had loved ones waiting for them, and they waved and called their thanks to Kate as they headed for their homes. The members of Project Lightpath took Bernie aside, welcoming him as a fellow Metamorian, and then he seemed to relax and begin accepting his strange new life. The old explorers led Bernie off to show him the city. At last, only Cynthia and Levinson remained, and the two spirits turned to face Kate. Cynthia held out her hand in invitation. Come on, Hal. You've searched for me for so long, and now you're hanging back like a guest on the front porch. Hal spoke, his voice echoing in Kate's mind and on her lips. I'm sorry, Mom. I just... This wasn't what I signed up for, you know? I had my whole life ahead of me. And I'll admit, maybe I wasn't doing as much with it as I could have, but it was mine. And now it's gone. And the best I can hope for is this. This strange new life with no body and some kind of psychic pseudo-heaven. Kate wiped at her eyes. And I'll do it. I'll figure out how to make it work. Because what other choice do I have? It's just hitting me. This is it. This is what's left to me. And I want to believe that it's enough, but it's just... I don't know. I don't know what I'm stepping into. And it scares me. Cynthia closed her eyes for a moment and nodded, a bittersweet smile on her face. I know, son. I know better than you realize. Do you know how old I was during Project Lightpath? Thirty-one. I had my whole life ahead of me, too. Or I thought I did. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way. She put a hand on Kate's shoulder, and Kate felt the presence as a gentle tingle of an electric field. The rift spirit's touch made her hair stand on end. Life gives us a lot of changes, son. Some we see coming, and we can choose whether to accept them or fight them. And some of them just blindside us. Cynthia gestured down at her own ethereal form. When that happens, we can get angry and lash out and curse the unfairness of the universe. We can define ourselves by our loss. We can demand answers and spend years trying to make sense of the reasons why. 
we can live in the past until it swallows us. Kate felt a shock of sudden realization run through Hal's mind. She'd seen immediately what Cynthia was getting at, but she had the benefit of a few more years and a lot more experiences than the comparatively sheltered Hal. Are you saying I shouldn't have gone looking for you? Hal asked. You are my son, Cynthia said gently. Selfishly, I am glad for the chance to know you, to share with you the world I have come to love. But when I imagined the best possible future for you, I had hoped for something more fulfilling than a life chasing ghosts. Kate felt herself shaking her head slowly. I just didn't know what else to do, Hal said. After Dad died, Baron Kapler fostered me because I was your son, the son of a hero. Because of you, I went to the best schools, got raised with the nobility, was given every opportunity. They have a statue of you at the Light Path Memorial, for God's sake. Everybody always talked about you as this amazing human being, and they acted like whatever they did for me, they were doing it for you. Kate's hands turned up at her sides. How could I not obsess about you? How could I not try to find out what happened to you? Of course the past swallowed me, Mom. Everybody around me was shoving me down its throat. There was real bitterness in Kate's voice now. She wondered how long that had been building up inside of Hal. About twenty-five years, probably. Cynthia bowed her head and nodded. I'm sorry they did that to you, Hal. Gods know I wouldn't have chosen it for you. She met Kate's eyes again, her expression earnest. But it makes what you do now that much more important. This time you don't have the whole world leaning on you to go one way over another. This time you have a real choice. Mom, I don't even know what that choice is. Stay here or die? That's a choice? Cynthia smiled, but the expression wasn't patronizing or dismissive. Kate could see an old pain in her eyes, the wisdom that came from experience. That's not the choice I meant, son. You can keep defining yourself by your loss, by what could have been or should have been. You can keep telling yourself it wasn't supposed to be this way. Or you can tell yourself a different story. Which is? That it is supposed to be this way. That there's a bigger purpose at work in what happens to you. Whose bigger purpose? Hal demanded. Eli? The fates? Cynthia shrugged. Iluvatar? The Great Mother? The universe itself? I don't have all the answers, Hal. I don't know if there's someone out there who's steering this ship from the top down, or if it organizes itself from the bottom up. I do know this. A long while ago, I decided to live my life like it served a greater purpose, like the world is on a trajectory toward a better future, like there were beautiful, wonderful truths out there waiting for me to discover them. And when I lived my life that way... The truth and the beauty and the goodness were all there when I looked for them, even when my life turned out nothing like I'd imagined. And the only reason I found those blessings was because I believed they were there. Hal passed a hand over Kate's face. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, 
he said quietly. Exactly, Levinson said. Or, as my mama told me, you'll see it when you believe it. Hal looked at the older man. Was it worth it, sir? The chances you took, the sacrifices you made, was it all worth it? Levinson grinned. It's been the greatest adventure of my life. Come on, boy. If we were supposed to play it safe, evolution would have given us turtle shells. Hal laughed. His presence turned inward now, and when he spoke, it was for Kate alone. Well, detective, it's been a long, strange trip, but I guess we're at the end of it. Kate huffed a laugh. Guess so. I'm sorry about your body. I know this wasn't what you planned. Very little about my life has gone the way I planned, Hal said dryly. I guess there's a lesson in that. I never did much worthwhile with my old life. Maybe if I give it a chance, I'll do better with this next one. Who knows? Maybe I'll even find some happiness. Kate smiled. I hope so. Good luck, Hal. You too, detective. Hal paused. Oh, and one more thing. We picked up some memories of what's coming from our time inside Cephe. Kate felt suddenly uneasy. Yeah? Yeah. I won't lie to you, detective. Dark days are coming. When they do, when things get desperate, and you're down to almost nothing, and it seems like there's no way to do what you've got to do, remember us. We'll be here, and we'll be waiting. When the end comes, you won't face it alone. I promise. Even in the steamy, tropical air, Kate's blood ran cold. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Hal sent her the image of a smile. You will. See you around, detective. Then the last flash of light rushed out of her, and Cynthia, Levinson, the entire city, everything the spirits had shown her, vanished as if they had never been. The flight home took longer than the trip to the rift. In the absence of an immediate crisis, the Elbereth saved fuel by holding to a constant orbital trajectory, so they had to wait for the space plane to swing around the planet and come back for another pass. Kate didn't care. She strapped into her seat in the shuttle, laid her head back, and slept like the dead. No one bothered to wake her when they docked with the mothership. She was safe enough in the shuttle, and she clearly needed the rest. She awoke to the roar and teeth-jarring turbulence of re-entry when the Albereth dropped them near Metamore, and Janus steered them for home. It was after nightfall when the police escort picked up Kate and David at the doors of Lothanasi headquarters. The Lightbringers had been kind enough to provide a hot meal, a shower, and a change of clean clothes for each of them. Between that and the nap on the shuttle, Kate felt almost human again. But then, in light of recent discoveries, almost human was probably the best she could hope for. The initial interview after the shooting was predictably awful. After turning in her badge and sidearm to Captain Montgomery, she was separated from David and placed in an interrogation room with her lawyer and a blandly polite, unmemorable investigator from Internal Affairs. 
Kate hadn't actually had a lawyer, had never needed one before now, so Janus had provided one, a short, feisty, and sharp-witted man named Dodson, who had built his career on managing the messy intersections between Lightbringer operations and local law enforcement. With Dodson's help, Kate explained the shooting and the events leading up to it, or as much as she could explain without revealing the existence of the Rift Spirits. Then she explained it again. Then she was given a break, moved to a different interrogation room, and questioned by a different investigator, who double-checked everything she told the first man and had some additional questions of his own. Yes, the Citadel's garage was outside her jurisdiction. No, going there had not been necessary for her investigation of the Travers case. No, she was no longer on assignment with the Ministry of Intelligence. Yes, she was aware that this made her an off-duty police officer who had used her firearm against a suspect outside of her jurisdiction. Yes, she was aware of the restrictions on concealed weapons within the Citadel. It was here that Dodson stepped in and saved her. In brisk, efficient tones, and with supporting documentation signed by Janus himself, Dodson explained that Kate had been temporarily deputized by the Lothanasi to assist them in rescuing Lady Sephira Hinlossos, an important material witness, and escorting her to a clandestine meeting with Majestrix Kaya. Kate was therefore legally acting as an agent of the Lothanasi during the resulting conflict, and not only was she within her rights to carry her firearm within the Citadel, she was morally and professionally obligated to use that firearm in the defense of Lady Sephra when such defense became necessary. As for the reason why Lady Sephra was being transported to such a meeting in the first place, or what interest certain other parties may have had in extinguishing Lady Sephra's life, those were matters of imperial security, and could only be answered at the discretion of the Director, or Majestrix Kaya, or Priestess Mirai Hindana, and all further inquiries should be directed to one of them. With the jurisdiction question neatly laid to rest, that left only the question of whether the shooting had been justified. Her friends and allies had all assured her repeatedly that it was. The internal affairs cop, by duty or by inclination, seemed intent on proving that it was not. After four hours of the interrogation merry-go-round, Kate didn't know what to think anymore. She stuck to the facts as best she could remember them and refused to speculate on might-have-beens. She could wrestle with those on her own time. At 11 p.m., Captain Montgomery put his foot down. He sent the IA cops on their way, warning them that if they wanted to question Kate again, then they damned well better come up with some new questions. Dodson promised to take care of everything and advised Kate to go home relax, and try to forget the whole ugly business. Kate said goodnight to the captain and David, both of whom had waited to make sure she was okay. She waved them off with a joke and a smile, went down to the garage, and took her swoop toward home. When she pulled up at the entrance to Serenity Arms, though, the idea of going home felt unbearable. What was waiting for her there? a ransacked apartment where she still didn't know where everything was, an empty bed that Hal had almost died in. Her fellow tenants would all be in bed so they could get up for work in the morning, something she wouldn't have to worry about for at least a month. She couldn't even expect a hot cup of tea from Ms. Fallon. Her vigilante landlady would be out on patrol, 
defending her borders from encroaching monsters. Monsters like the ones from Hunter's Hollow, a few blocks to the south, where Kate and David had nearly died less than 24 hours ago. She loved her apartment, loved the place and the people in it, but now everything about it seemed to echo sorrow and pain and loss. She left Serenity Arms behind and kept flying. She wasn't sure where she was going until she got there. She parked her swoop against the plain concrete wall at the back of the building. She walked up to the door next to the brass nameplate. She knocked four times. No one answered for a long time. If nobody came, if she were left standing out here like a fool, she didn't know what she'd do. Tears started to well up in her eyes, and she was just too tired to make them stop. The door opened. A tall, impossibly handsome devil looked out, smiled knowingly, and then the smile abruptly faded as he saw her face. Catherine? John asked. Catherine, what's wrong? Kate sniffed back the tears. I've... I've learned some things about myself, she said. Things that I'm not sure I like. And I remembered what you said. That I was trying to be something I wasn't. That I belonged in the darkness. With you. John winced. Catherine. I don't know if that's true, Kate said, forging on. But I know two things for sure now. One, there is darkness inside of me. I killed a woman today, John. I am a killer. It's a part of me now. I feel stained. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. The incubus looked like he'd been punched in the gut. I'm so sorry, he whispered. The second thing I learned... Kate said, is that I'm not even totally human. And part of that, apparently, one of my super deluxe bonus features, is that I'm immune to compulsion. I had a vampire, a strong one, look me right in the eyes and try to dominate me. And he failed. John looked like he was thinking it over. But that's a good thing, isn't it? Oh, sure, Kate sniffed again and wiped at her eyes. Except, here's the thing. The first time I was here, when you... offered, all I wanted to do was jump your bones. I thought that was you putting the whammy on me. But you can't, John. You can't make me do anything I don't want to do. She choked back a sob. <laughs> So what does that say about me? What does that say about what I want? John stared at her for a long, long moment. Then he opened the door wider. An invitation. Only you can decide what you want, he said gravely. And only you can decide what it means. She nodded, stepped forward pressed her palms against his strong, bare chest. I don't know where I belong, 
I don't know if this is right, or if it's wrong, or if it's just stupid. And right now, I don't care. She reached up with one hand and touched his beautiful face. Right now, I just don't want to be alone. She leaned in and kissed him. A burst of desire and need shot through her, stoked and fueled by the boiling cauldron of life mana locked inside her. She wrapped her arms around his neck, while his tightly encircled her waist. They deepened the kiss together, giving and receiving in turn. And for now, at least, Kate forgot about everything else. The world and all its troubles could wait for tomorrow, and whatever the dawn would bring. John drew her inside and shut the door. This concludes the Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This audio adaptation was recorded and mixed at Metamore Studios in Livingston, Montana and Madison, Wisconsin. The book is copyright 2013 by Chris Lester, and this recording is copyright 2016 by Liminal Corvid Press. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Find out more details on this license at creativecommons.org. This book is dedicated to Phoenix. The flame you rekindled still burns brightly. Catherine Catane will return in The Lost and the Least. Thank you for listening.